The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, thank you for the promise that we are your people by your grace and that where we gather together, you dwell in our midst. So you are here with us. We are, we are gathered here now to hear from you. Will you teach? Will you make your word clear to us and will you build your church? Will you help us to think rightly about the subjects that are in front of us this morning for our benefit? Don't just... Don't just make us more informed, but actually bless us and grow us with these truths. Build your church, please. Do us good in that way and bring honor to your name here. We ask in Christ's name, amen. We love our freedom. As we celebrate our national freedom here on 4th of July weekend, we are reminded of how much it cost us to acquire it and to maintain it, and so in a way that makes it even more precious, we love it all the more. Freedom is sweet. But freedom can also be perverse. Some things we are not meant to be free from. Sometimes freedom is bad. None of us are fond of people who feel the freedom to drive however they please not bound by the traffic laws. No bank could ever survive loaning money and saying, you are free to pay it back if you like. It's up to you, your choice. Of course, some freedoms are not right. They are wrong. They are bad. But freedom is always a very appealing concept. It resonates with us. For right or for wrong, in right and in wrong, Something in us very much is attracted to, loves liberty, the ability to evaluate things for ourselves and decide things for ourselves and and choose our own course of action and execute it in the way we please when it suits us. We love freedom. And that brings us to our passage today at the end of 2 Peter 2. So, So last week, Peter has been devoting some time to discussing this false teaching that's circulating within the church. In verses 10 to 16, in short, he said, this idea that there is no second coming of Christ and then therefore no judgment and then therefore no divine authority over us, that idea, when you live it out and follow it all the way through, it reduces people to living like animals, ruled by instinct. Talked about this last week. If you throw off God and his rule, what it eventually comes to is a world that is very ugly and deeply dehumanizing. But throwing off God and his rule, these false teachers spin that as freedom. And that's good packaging because people love freedom. And so in this last section before Peter finally comes in chapter 3 to address the truth about the second coming of Christ, he's going to address this false offer, this perverse offer of freedom telling us more about the actual bondage that these teachers are in and under and that would come to anyone who follows them into what they're offering. So we're going to look at this morning. Let me begin by reading the passage. This is verses 17 to 22, and then I'll draw out from it two observations. 2 Peter 2, beginning verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. 
For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom. They themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Second Peter 2. Two observations. Here's the first. Freedom from God's rule leads to slavery, not life. Freedom from God's rule leads to slavery, not life. Verse 17 begins with some imagery of empty promise. These false teachers look like they have water for you to quench thirst. That's a frequent biblical motif. Dryness, thirst of heart, of soul, it's a problem of the human condition, and God's teaching is often represented as refreshing water that, that quenches that thirst, that gives us relief and delight. It provides for us in a dry and weary desert. It, it renews, refreshes our soul. It looks like they had that. But when you draw up near to them, you, you come to the well and you drop down your knees and you come to the low spot where the spring should have been welling up, it, what's there is dust. No water. And overhead, mists, like heavy clouds. And you think there's rain because you, you, you can feel the humidity in the air. There should be water there, but it, they just blow right on by. The storm winds just blow it right on by, and no actual rain actually falls on you. There's no water. But ironically, there is utter darkness. There is the darkness of the storm foreshadowing what's reserved for them, the judgment. They are an empty promise. Boy, are they good at promising. They can be persuasive and relentless. Verse 18, speaking loud boasts of folly. And the grammar there is emphasizing the constant nature of their messaging. On and on and on. They are that commercial that comes up in every commercial break. On and on and on. Puffed up and vocal and attention-getting, they are salesmen throwing out there their teaching, and it's particularly effective at enticing particular ones. Now, last week we also talked about enticing. It was the same word, but a little bit different here. Then they were enticing unstable souls to use them and pry upon them, and it was deceptive. They were, they were doing something beneath the surface that you couldn't see. Well, here the enticing is a little bit different. It is wide open and public. Explicit. And surely some more mature Christians see that and then outright reject it. Now, we, we should be careful. When he talks about they are able to entice certain ones, none of us should think that we are above this. Every person in, in some place might fall for it, but there are some particular ones who are particularly vulnerable to this kind of enticing. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh. 
he says. That's what they're using. That's what they are appealing with. The reason to believe their teaching. Because of what it would get you. Look. Put the product right in front. This is what would come to you. Sensual passion of the flesh made permissible and good and right. What you feel and what you were drawn to and what you feel you're missing, what you really, really want, here it is made just perfect for you in our teaching. This is Peter directly hitting the nail directly on the head once again. So much of all this false teaching, and in fact, so much of a lot of false teaching, is really just about creating a license for licentiousness. This is how we all come to embrace something false. We figure out what we want, and then we figure out how to make it justifiable. It doesn't go the other way. It comes to, what, what do I feel, and then how can I get that? Well, this is what they're offering. Here's what you want. It's available in our teaching. Put this together with verse 19 to see the whole picture. They preach, they teach, promise, offer, pronounce freedom. That is, freedom from that old, stodgy, disappointing, repressive, unhappy idea. This old, stodgy, repressive, unhappy God who's going to judge people for doing what he doesn't like but which we all do. What a dreary God. He's against all the stuff that's good. And particularly what he's against is sensual, sexual things that feel so good and so desirable and so right, and we want them, but he's the one standing in the way, holding us back from a real and good and pleasurable and deep and satisfying, enjoyable life. So restrictive and so repressing. Repressive, that's what they're saying about him. Now, I've said this a few times, but it's worth bringing up to kind of remember. We have more to say about that than we're going to say this morning. We have more to say about the whole idea of sensuality and pleasure and sexuality in God than is being discussed here. Because God made all of that and made it to be in a certain way and to feel in a certain way and made us to be receptive of all that. The world didn't come up with that. God did. And we have a whole nother conversation to have about what God thinks about sexuality and sensuality and pleasure within some proper bounds that he has set up so as to maximize all that. That's the God who is, and we can have a whole nother conversation about that. And I've Talked about that a couple times before, and it's worth remembering that. But of course, what the world is really about is throwing off all of those proper bounds, getting rid of God to do it how we all want. And it sees, actually correctly, properly sees, God as standing in the way of that. Notice, they have noticed something. Something that's real and important. If, as the Bible teaches, there is a day of judgment, then that reality means that there is a sense of, a proper right sense of judgment from God of us according to God's standards, not ours. 
They have connected those two dots. Properly so. And many in the world have too. But of course they don't like that. They don't like the sense of the fear of judgment. It hangs over their heads every time they sin, every time they move towards sin. You, you felt this, we've all felt this. We move towards sin and there is some little voice that says, uh, don't go there because you'll have to give an account for that. People don't appreciate that. People don't like that voice and the, the sense of the foreboding, the fear, of the, the, the condemnation of what I'm about to do. People don't like that. So, good news. There is a solution to that. We can get rid of that fear, of that sense of foreboding. You can live free from the fear, from the anxiety-inducing tension because we've realized now that none of that judgment stuff is true. He isn't coming. There isn't any answering to him. Be free from all that. And then realize this is such good news too. You are captain of your own ship. Do whatever appeals to you. Look into yourself and try to figure out who you are and what, what, what you really are made for and how you really, at least at the moment, what really appeals to you and go do that. That's right and proper and appropriate. And sensual passion of the flesh, sure. It's permissible and right and good. Go for it. There aren't any consequences to it. You were made for this. Just do it. That's the offer kind of spun out there in front of people as a lure. And who's most vulnerable to that? Now, none of us should think that we aren't vulnerable to that, but some people in particular are most vulnerable to that within the church. Of course, it's out there in the world, but within the church, as Peter, Peter's concern here, that bait lures certain people, particularly vulnerable people, he says, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. New, immature Christians, the world lives in air, and people who have just barely come out of that, new, immature Christians, or maybe those who aren't actually yet Christians, but have come in for a moment to check things out, who are looking for some sort of a shelter, some sort of a refuge, or an answer to this sense of foreboding of, of God's judgment, the sense of guilt, and the sense of, like, the dirtiness of life here in this world. And I've, I've heard that maybe there's some sort of an offer of some sort of relief from something in this Christian message. And so they, they, they poke in to check it out. And what they hear here is there actually isn't any judgment. The sense that you're feeling of, of guilt, that's actually wrong. Don't be guilty because you're not. Go out and do it all. And the people who have just barely come out of that, that's particularly attractive. All of us may be susceptible to it, but, but some of us are perhaps a little more susceptible to it. And that's why Peter's provoked to confront this, speaking to the church. Because he points out that's actually going to destroy people. It doesn't lead to freedom in life. It leads back into slavery. Verse 19, they promise freedom, but look at them. They are slaves to corruption themselves. They live like the animals ruled by their lusts. They've been overcome by all that. It's a false offer. There's no water of life there. There's nothing there. Look at their lives. Now, 
That statement, look at their lives, that idea there that he's definitely trying to press home here, it implies a certain bit of, I'm going to make an evaluation of, but we need to be careful to not be judgmental of in our judging. Judging is appropriate. That's just another word for noticing and drawing some conclusions. Judgmentalism is acting like God to pronounce. That's where we don't want to go. But to make a judgment, we must, and this is, this is assuming we will, look at and make a discerning judgment. Is that freedom or is that bondage? When I was a student in college, I was a resident assistant for a number of years, lived in and was kind of overseeing a floor with other students who were younger than me on it, and one particularly disgusting night, guy on the floor that I knew fairly well came home completely hammered and proceeded to throw up all over the hallway and slipped and fell on it and got it all over himself. And it was disgusting. And as I'm helping him clean it up, I knew him. I mean, I, I was gracious to him. It's my job, but I also liked him. I'm trying to help him. It was pretty hard to not think, yuck. Or ironically, boy, you're living the life, man. There's some freedom. Hope the party was fun. And when you wake up tomorrow morning and have to deal with all of this, I hope you can remember this. Now, I didn't say that to him. And of course, if, if you have that attitude a little bit too strong, it really easily moves towards judgmentalism, but let's just draw a judgment from that. I'll bet you a dollar that sometime around midnight the night before, he was feeling pretty good about things. And somewhere around 2 a.m. in the hallway, maybe the next morning around 11, he wouldn't be. We have to observe that and make a conscious decision. What is that? Freedom or bondage? And of course, that's a particularly disgusting example. We could pick all kinds of different things. But the point here is, he's saying, look at their lives. They promise freedom. Is it? Is it? His conclusion is, no, it isn't. It is tragically a false offer of freedom, and they end up just slaves. And it's doubly tragic because it completely misses the fact that the Christian message, the true Christian message, is in fact a gigantic offer of true freedom. A gigantic offer of true freedom from the fear and the gloom of judgment. You see that coming and you fear that? There is a way to be free from it in the message that ironically, tragically, they are rejecting. This is a gigantic offer of freedom from enslavement and freedom from controlling evil powers and freedom from being controlled by the twisted and fallen feelings that are all so fickle in me and freedom from sin and from corruption and death. All the things that we should be free from and want to be free from, God in grace in Christ offers it. 
freedom from all of that and freedom to be what we are made for, to be real, full human beings. Spiritually regenerated, that is born again as image bearers of God with new hearts who make choices, who think things through, who evaluate and see what is good and right and honorable and noble and true and then choose to to cling to that and follow that path. And that is the path that is personally deeply desirable and profoundly satisfying. That's the glorious freedom to that life that he offers us in sending Christ to be a slave himself, a servant to us, subject to sin. So the gospel is about this great irony that Christ becomes a servant so that we can become free, really free in this profound way. Their false offer of freedom misses all of that real freedom and just leaves them enslaved to an ugly corruption. So hear this. He, obviously, he's telling it. He's not telling the false teachers this. He's telling the church this so that we can hear it and be warned off of it and for ourselves so that we can revel in it. That kind of freedom is what God brought to you. So so hear that for yourself, but also be sure that you hear it and are clear about it in conversations with others. Because we don't just want to say, your freedom is bad, we love restriction. We want to say, your freedom is wrong, here's true freedom. And be able to explain that. So you've got to get that clear yourself and be able to explain to others, friends and family, parents especially with kids. And you also have to explain it I find that I need to explain this probably a little more carefully because it can sound like I'm talking about something that is instantaneous and absolute. It's actually a freedom that is grown into in the experiencing of it. I know this personally for myself. In a a lot of ways, I'm a restricted, kind of bound up personality. And freedom for me looks like, like this tension of enjoying God and enjoying who he's made me to be and enjoying walking with him. There are other people who are loosey-goosey and free to start with and may seem a whole lot more free than I am, and they're not Christians. What's the deal? You've got to explain some things here. Don't get stuck on personalities. Me in Christ is something. Them in Christ would be something more. Don't get stuck on personalities. Don't get tripped up by that. To be able to explain that the freedom is actually something that we grow into as we mature. And it works with our personalities, not apart from them. But it's real and it's good. To be able to explain that to others and to show this is what God actually offers and it can't come in what they're offering. You can't be free from sin by serving self. Part of the reason they miss it, though, is that they have, in a sense, these false teachers have, in a sense, already tried a little bit, a a sample of the Christian faith we're talking about, just enough to inoculate them. And so they've tried it, found it lacking, the sample, and then moved on to other things. And that's what brings us to our second observation. Here's the second point. 
One can know Christ in a way that brings temporary relief, but not spiritual regeneration. One can know Christ in a way that brings temporary relief, but not spiritual regeneration. And that spiritual regeneration, that being made a new creation, born again, that's the key. That's where the freedom lies. Verse 19 ends by pointing out these false teachers are again enslaved, having been overcome again by their sensual passions and lust, and actually that's a worse state than where they started. And then verse 20 goes on to explain that. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, so follow their journey there, they were, they were knee-deep in the defilements, the corruptions of the world, all this influence, influences the world, and that statement is very similar to some things he said already, especially similar to chapter 1, verse 4. And in fact, there are several things right here that are very similar to things in chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4. Similar, but different, but pretty close. So these ones were in that. They were knee-deep in the corruptions of the world, and then they escaped from the defilements of the world. How? Verse 20 continues, through the knowledge of Christ. And that word knowledge if you were here when we were back in chapter 1, you may recall that we discussed how Peter uses two very, very similar but slightly different words for knowledge, chapter 1. And the word that he used in verses 2 and 3 has more of a relational bent. The knowledge of God is a more relational knowledge of God, not just knowing facts about him, but having relationship with him. That's the word that's here in our passage today, verses 20 and 21. These ones escape the corruption of the world through the relational knowledge of the Lord. Just like in chapter one, or so it seems. Just like for all of us Christians, so it seems. They escaped the knowledge of the Lord and then after that they are again entangled in the defilements of the world and overcome. If you stop there and look just at that much, it is easy to see why some people read this passage, just that little bit right there, and think that Peter is saying they were in the world, they became genuine, true Christians just like us, and then they lost their salvation and aren't Christians anymore. And this darkness of judgment, hell, is what's reserved for them. That's where they're going. You can see that. It's easy to see how someone could get that from this very statement and then turn and teach that Christians can lose their salvation. For the record, that's not true. That's not what Peter's teaching. True Christians cannot become non-Christians again. People who have been born again cannot be unborn again. But it's easy to see how you can get that from here at first glance. But there's more going on here that we need to notice carefully. And we need to notice it carefully because we're going to, as we come to the end of this, we need to be clear. Peter's not saying this so as to score some points in a theological debate. Nobody debated that back then. He's saying this to warn us about 
a type of knowing Christ that we must not settle for. Coming to that at the end. There are some things here we need to notice very carefully. For sure, these guys, these false teachers, like the weeds among the wheat, in that parable that Jesus told, they looked just alike to all the Christians all around them. Couldn't tell them apart. But now, as we look at this passage, what Peter is saying is that, in fact, there were some unidentifiable but real differences. The first clue is in the last phrase of verse 20, where Peter references the conclusion to a story that Jesus told, quoting him almost verbatim. The last state has become worse for them than the first. In Matthew 12 and in Luke 11, we read of the story Jesus told about something characteristic of this evil generation, as he puts it there, in Matthew 12, verse 45. An unclean spirit has gone out of a person, he explains, Jesus explains, and finding nowhere to rest, it then says to itself, I will return to the house from which I just came. I'm going to go back to the person that I just left. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Notice, that's the key point right here. The house is cleaned up as if it has escaped out from the corruption and defilement of the world. The house is clean, but it's empty. There is no new spirit living in the house. And so the demon goes and finds seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And so, Jesus' conclusion, the last state of the person is worse than it was at first. That's what Peter quotes. Meaning, these false teachers are the kind of evil generation that Jesus was talking about. They did, as verse 21 says, they did know and experientially know the way of righteousness. They did have experience of Jesus, not just knowing facts about him like somebody who can read, could read the Bible and, and learn and memorize. They actually knew him. They met him in some real way. They knew of his near blessing and his power and his merciful nature and his loving grace. I've seen this a bunch of times, but I'm going to pick one that I'm, I'm sure you could not possibly know. Years ago, when we lived in the Middle East, we had a Muslim language teacher that became a friend of ours with whom we often talked about Jesus and his gospel. And one day at a party at her house, she pulled us aside into another room and with great excitement told us, I have decided to try Christianity for a little while to see if it is for me. And ever since I did, things have been so different and so good for me. I don't remember exactly all she said, it's been a few decades. But she went on to talk about something like, I'm gonna embellish this a little bit, but she said things like this. She continued, as I've been reading the New Testament, I've decided to let myself kind of take it in. As a Muslim, I was, re I was raised to always like be on guard against it and know that there's air in it and to hold it at, at arm's length. But I decided to like not do that and just receive it and, and believe what's there. And when I do, Jesus is amazing. 
Have you seen him? Like, yes. He's amazing. I read the New Testament, and what comes out is he is wise and powerful, and he says that we should ask him for what we need, and so I've been talking to him, I've been, I've been lifting up things to him in prayer, and as I pray, things happen. He's doing things for me. It's him. He is so loving and wise and gentle and kind and trusting him to lead you is so very different than just obeying the commands of Islam. Totally different. Totally different. And he leaves me feeling forgiven. He's, he's merciful and kind and when I, when I like face my sin and think about the things I'm doing wrong, I don't feel him to be angry with me. I was always raised to believe that God is stern the God of Islam. But this Jesus is gracious and merciful and gentle and lowly and forgiving and, and kind and so it makes me want to like be honest about things and like deal with him with them and I've actually stopped doing some things with my boyfriend that I probably knew I shouldn't be doing anyway and, and it feels good. It feels clean. It feels like I'm clean for the first time in a long time. I really think this Christianity might be for me. It's wonderful. Now, as I said, I've embellished that a little bit. I don't remember all the exact things she said, but something like that generally. Very excited. She was eager to tell us all of that and thought we would be excited too. What do you think? Are you excited for her? Well, that's good that she's experiencing that for sure. But realize she's not a Christian. She said so herself in the first sentence which was the first thing that caught my attention. When she told it to me, I thought, oh, 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 oh. I hope she didn't just get inoculated. She thought she was a Christian, but she said in her own words, I've decided to try Christianity for a little while to see if it's for me. That opening sentence is not conversion. Her own words reveal that she didn't grasp the issues of sin and judgment, and the true gospel, the point of the cross, and what real saving faith is. To trust oneself to Christ and his cross cannot be done with calculation on a trial basis. She had this idea, as many do, that you can dip your toe or your leg and sit on the edge of the pool and dangle and try it out. It's jumping in as a cannonball. You can't do that partially, temporarily. Faith is a wholehearted surrender. But at the same time, she was indeed relating to Jesus far beyond the level of formal intellect. She's definitely experiencing a different life than she was before, than her friends around her were, than what she'd been raised to believe in this other religion. She's experiencing Jesus as he actually is, believing him to be full of grace and mercy, not anger and judgment. And looking at him that way, everything was changing for her. Very different. But as she did that, like the ones in this passage, to get back to the passage here, while she was with him and experiencing him, while you're among the Christian community, 
What you do find there is something that is different and even a a preserving, protecting, cleansing shield from the world. All that's true, but while that's true, it is also still entirely possible that Jesus not have moved in and taken up possessing residence there, that the house still be empty. A person who has come to experientially know Christ might not have been born again as a new creation in Christ. Regenerate is the term, and that's what happened here. How do we know it's what happened here? How can we tell that these ones in some way had come to know him but not been regenerated? Well, the final verse is the definitive answer. The clue is the quote of Jesus. The definitive answer is the final verse. The true proverb has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallowing in the mire. Pigs were inherently unclean animals in the Jewish mindset, and dogs were wild and dirty scavengers. That's why it's an insult to call somebody a dog. These are two vile beasts, and while a dog who has just wolfed down all the garbage on the street may vomit it out and get all that yuck like out of it, we've all seen this happen, the dog is going to circle back and start sniffing and licking that, that very stuff again because it's a dog. And you can wash a pig clean, but it will do what pigs do, and it will head back to the mud. That's what happened to these teachers, because their natures were still the same. They were not new creations. Still unclean dogs and pigs. They came close, they cleaned the house, but it never filled up. It was never indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so it came again to be indwelt by these evil ones. Freeing relief, for sure. They experienced it. My friend in Turkey experienced it. But not spiritual regeneration. Now, so why is this here? Not to score some points in some theological debate, but to encourage us, to exhort us, to point out, don't seek out that type of promised freedom. A freedom of felt relief or release or satisfaction or delight a burden that I'm under that I just have to get out from under, and when I do, oh, good. That's attractive, but lots of things can give you that. Lots of things can give you a sense of felt relief temporarily, even a version of meeting Jesus as you read about him and pray about him and get immersed in the Christian family. It might seem good and it might give you some peace, but be sure that you face and grasp the core issues of the gospel. Personal sin, guilt and condemnation before God, that's where we stand. You gotta see that and gotta grasp that first. And then the offer of forgiveness in Christ's cross, amazing grace, offered freely to all who surrender to him in wholehearted faith, who jump in, who give themselves to it. Don't just dip a toe in, but say, I'm in, and if this is wrong, I'm doomed. But I'm not just trying it out. This is the only hope, I think. That's what I believe. Here goes. That's the nature of saving faith. 
in Christ's cross, payment for my sin, to relieve off of me guilt. That's how a person is born again, and that's where freedom comes from, the new creation. Freedom is offered for sure, but freedom is offered in the gospel. Be sure that you grasp the gospel and don't just look for the freedom. Don't just look for the felt relief. Don't settle for that. You find true freedom as a new creation in Christ. That's what God offers to us in Jesus and nowhere else. Let me pray. Father, will you help us? Help us all to understand and to be able to to process and grow in our ability to communicate about these things, but maybe help some of us in particular who are vulnerable to false offers, who are just looking for some sort of relief and will take any port in a storm. Christianity, sure. Lord, help those ones in particular to see the true Christian faith, to face Jesus and sin and the cross and his offer of grace and to trust him truly. Lord, do that work in our midst. Thank you for your offer. Bring it home to every single one of us here, please. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.